It is Monday, November 1st. How are you doing today? Are you well? Have you had a good weekend? It's me, your BBG. Yeah, I'll turn that down a little bit. That might help. Push down the wrong fader there. That's a Monday thing to do. Uh, as I said, I hope uh, you've had a good weekend. Thanks for joining me. I've got two very good guests today and I think lots to discuss. Join me via the website. You can chat with me via the website richieallen.co.uk where it says Comment Live. That's the one. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host... Richie Allen. Yeah, I went for the wrong fader there. Do you know what I've been doing while I've been preparing the programme? I've been reading the text updates of the England-Sri Lanka T20 World Cup cricket game. That's what I've been doing. I've been concentrating on the job at hand, but I've been keeping an eye on the cricket. As I said, how are you? I'll be joined in the second hour by Tony Gosling. I don't need to tell you too much about Tony. Live from Bristol. The Politics Show, of course. Great presenter, great journalist. Before that, though, we'll be hearing from Lee. Lee is a restaurateur from Yorkshire. And he sent me a very interesting email. And as is the style of the Richie Allen Show, I invited Lee to come on the programme to chat about that mail. He said he'd be delighted to do so. So Lee joins the programme this hour. That's about uh, right for Monday. That's it. That's it. Good night. See you tomorrow. No, two good guests, two very good guests, and lots and lots of chat. Big story today on my website. Do check out richieallen.co.uk. The headline is Internet Trolls Face Jail for Causing Psychological Harm. It isn't sensationalism. It's true. Check it out if you get a chance. I will be getting into that in more detail with Tony Gosling a bit later on. Serious times for independent journalism. I think that's putting it mildly. Anyway, the weather is shite, isn't it? I had a nice bit of physio this morning, though, and I feel a bit freer as a result in the neck and shoulder region. So I do. So I do. Think about the young, said Davy Attenborough today. We're in the last chance saloon, said Jimmy Savile's best pal, Charles of Wales. It's a minute to midnight, said Boris Johnson. We're absolutely fooked, and we're all dead if we don't do something now, said everybody else speaking today at the opening ceremony of COP26 in Glasgow. There is a bright note, though, to all of this lunacy, and that is that we, Jimmy Cranky, is well beside herself. She's livid, is the little ginger troll, little pencil topper. Why? Well, she's Scotland's first minister, but that's about as impressive as being a girl guide leader. Nobody gives a spit, so she's not allowed to speak which is tearing her up inside the little poisoned wharf, Nicola. What did she do, though? Well, she showed everyone she had a photo call with Greta Thunberg and Greta's biggest rival, another kid who has bunked off school loads of times too. You know the one I'm talking about? She's a black girl and she's vying for the title with Greta. You see the way Greta looks at the other young climate priestess. This is my barbecue, bitch. This is Greta's stage. 
It's all happening today. As the media dropped everything else, rolling coverage, Kay Birdie broadcasting live from there this morning. That kicked it off. Every other programme on BBC News 24 and on Sky News has been broadcast live from good old COP26. And Kay Birdie gave me my first laugh of the day because she only had on Insulate Britain's Cameron Ford. Now, Cameron is as mad as a carrier bag full of badgers. Kay said to him, Cameron, Boris is doing his best to get a consensus. (laughs) And Cameron, the young Insulate Britain activist, well, he isn't best pleased by what Kay said. Smells a bit pooey to me. Boris is absolutely lying. He's consistently lying. He's a constant greenwasher. He's going to go there, tell the world how we're leaders of the Green Revolution. That's absolutely crap. Have you told your audience what a two Celsius world looks like? Which is Have you, Kay? Which is what we're on track for. Because I believe they want to know that if COP fails, they need to know what it's going to look like. Are you going to tell them what societal collapse looks like, Kay? Are you, Kay? Kay. <laughs> I think that's what we are trying to do, Cameron. And okay, using that's it. A better okay, language. Are you going to tell them? Cameron, Cameron, let me ask the questions and then you can answer them, if you wouldn't mind. And um, if you could probably temper your language just a little bit for a breakfast audience, otherwise you're going to get me oh, in all no sorts best. of trouble and nobody oh, yeah, wants that. that. Are no your methods... Are your methods of protest the right way to get the public on side, would you say? Go on. This is not about getting the public on side. This is getting the government to act. In their, It's their duty to look after us, which they're not doing. And we need to talk about... Go, Boris says we're at one minute to midnight. It's five past midnight. I'm sorry, but we uh, need non-violent civil resistance. Otherwise, we're hurtling towards societal collapse. And that means there's going to be slaughter, rape, genocide. There's going to be no NHS that will collapse. There'll be no pensions. We're going to see a 1,000 million people, climate refugees, on the move. And when we have food shortages in this country, it's going to be cutthroats on the cereal aisle in Morrison's. It's going to be a bloodbath. And you need to tell your audience that if COP fails, this is what's coming. Slaughter, rape, genocide, no NHS, murder in the Isles of Morrison's. Did he say that? There's going to be slaughter, rape, genocide there's going to be no nhs that will collapse there'll be no pensions we're going to see a thousand million people climate refugees on a thousand million on the move and when we have food shortages in this country it's going to be cutthroats on the cereal aisle in morrison's it's going to be a bloodbath and you need to tell your audience that if cop fails this is what's coming right slaughter rape Genocide, no NHS, and cutthroats in the cereal aisle in Morrison's. That's evangelical fervour, really. And Cameron believes that he's mentally ill. Do not say that as a put-down. Don't. I know you're thinking it. I'm thinking it. I don't say it as a put-down or to demean or to dehumanise him. He believes that. That which he has said is patently insane, but he believes it. Let's have some more. Happy jeepers. Let's have some more, I said. Dag nabbit, here's more. Hey, Cameron, here's more. And super gluing yourself to the motorway is the way forward, is it? After all that, Kay says, super gluing your way, your backside to the motorway. Well, well, that's the way forward, is it? Well, it got me on your show, didn't it, Kay? Nah, 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 nah. It did, but I wonder how much well, people are actually taking account of what you're... 
Cameron, well, Cameron, Cameron, let me just finish. Let me just finish, Cameron, and then you can answer my question. Can, you, can I just finish and then you can answer my question? That would be great. Thank you. It did get me on the show, but some of the rhetoric that you're using, I'm allowing you to try to get the audience back on side. And they're not at the moment. So I'm giving you the platform to explain how you can get my viewers back on side so that you can take them with you rather than alienate them. I'm giving you the chance now, Cameron, <laughs> to straighten up and fly right and less of the madness now, less of the apocalyptic visions, so that you can take my viewers with you on your We Must Save the Planet voyage. Okay, well, I hope that as people understand, which we're getting to talk about this by getting this platform, we're getting to tell the audience that the next three to four years will determine the future of humanity. If people really connect with what Sir David King has said there, then they would be out on the streets in civil resistance themselves. And they would need to come together in civil resistance against the treason this government is committing, against the empty promises. We need to be in civil resistance to the fuel poverty in this country, to them selling off the NHS, to them spewing shit in our rivers and to the greed and corruption of the government. We need to rise up and be in civil resistance because when COP fails, what else is there to do? Did he say shit, Kay? You put manners on him now. Okay, Cameron, so you've got me in trouble again now by using other words that we're not allowed to use at breakfast time. Hopefully you will come back on again and hopefully you'll sort that potty mouth out. Thanks <laughs> so much well, for joining us on the programme this out, morning. I think he's got bigger problems than his potty mouth personally, but that's just me. The media is joining in with this. It's presenting it. You know, it isn't asking any questions. I know that won't strike you as unusual. I know you're not exactly dying now of surprise, but they're they're there presenting this and it's going to go on day in, day out until next Friday week. Listen to LBC's Sheila Fogarty this afternoon, National Radio. She's reading out text messages. Listen to the text message and her response to it then. This is interesting. Let me read. This text has come in. It's absolutely irrelevant what we do here in the UK. I just, I'm, I'm afraid I don't agree. Um, we can't take that attitude that it's irrelevant. You know, the, the, one of the first speakers um, beyond Prince Charles and Attenborough and the Prime Minister um, uh, was a woman in, in one of the um, uh, Polynesian islands describing, uh, from one of the Polynesian islands, describing how they are not drowning, they are fighting what's coming. So that they're, they're not drowning, they're fighting what's coming. So that they're, they're looking they're looking disaster in the face in a way that we aren't yet. And they are fighting. They are fighting for their lives. They're fighting for their communities. So they're fighting. So I just don't buy the shoulder shrug anymore. We can't shrug our shoulders and say it's irrelevant what we do here in the UK. And even if even if you think behaviour change is irrelevant uh, or too small to make a difference. We'll think of something else that will make a difference. Here's an irrefutable fact. Long before man walked on this planet, there was more CO2 in the atmosphere than there is now. A lot more. And the the world didn't collapse. There were times in in the history of this planet when the CO2 was less than it is now, and yet there were sea level rises 20 metres and above, higher than anything we've ever seen. This is madness, this. And I have made a career out of saying, this is my opinion and this is fact. There is no climate crisis. It is nonsense. 
And I think we've explained, or guests have come on here and explained many a time what's really going on and why they're inflicting this on people. It is dreadful. Let's move away from climate change for a moment because it's not happening, number one. And Tony Gosling wants to get into it in the second hour with me. The Richie Allen Show, 12 minutes past the hour. It is the 1st of November. The old clocks went back and it's fairly dark today already. Anyway, some parents have accused girl guiding of sexualizing children after a charity announced... It was raising awareness, the charity, Girl Guides is a charity, after the charity announced that it was raising awareness and understanding of the asexuality community this week. The asexuality community. (laughs) So the girls only youth group, it used to be girls only, they're letting boys with little willies who think that they are girls, they're being allowed in I believe, But the girls-only group has come under fire. It's being accused of forcing woke ideology onto children who shouldn't be concerned with sexual desire or lack of sexual desire just yet. The Girl Guides tweeted, This week is Ace Week. It's a time to raise awareness and understanding of the asexual community. So here's a shout out to all of our asexual volunteers and members. Thank you for everything you do in girl guiding. What kind of fuckery are you? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I I would have said quite a lot of fuckery, Amy, to be honest. Yeah. Thanks to all our asexual volunteers. Guess who seized on the story as a glorious chance for a bit of virtue signalling? Of course, it's LBC's James O'Brien. Ricky Gervais must listen to James O'Brien and think, Chapers, I could have done so much more with David Brent. Because James O'Brien is David Brent on steroids. Note when O'Brien speaks, note the little pauses when he believes that he has said something profound. This is funny stuff. He took on the Girl Guide's critics and he went to bat for the asexual community and the asexual girl guide volunteers. This is this is vaudeville. That that is part of the problem, I think, with the things that we've just spoken about. This idea that if you teach about homosexuality, you are promoting homosexuality. Look, you promote pop concerts, don't you? You you prom- not in the context of giving people a pay rise or, or or a new job. In terms of promoting, you're trying to flog it. If you promote the Great British Radio Show, this radio program is being promoted on billboards all over the country at the moment. Are they still up, Keith? Have we still got Bill? Yeah, there we go. Quite right too. We're promoting the James O'Brien Show on Bill. We promote LBC on billboards. So that verb is really important, I think, in this conversation. You promote stuff uh, to encourage people to do it. You know, you promote butterkissed popcorn in the cinemas in the hope that people will buy it. You promote, I mean, vegetarianism in the context of climate change. Promoting something is encouraging people to behave in a certain way. So it seems relatively innocuous. And there was a time I would have read past that without even noticing it. But that time is behind me now. That's really bad journalism. The Girl Guides are not promoting asexuality awareness. They are acknowledging it. Acknowledging it. Okay. They are removing veils of ignorance. And how do I know that? Because I've got one. 
I've got a massive veil of ignorance. It's something I know nothing about. Until relatively recently, I wouldn't even known that it existed. Human beings who just don't have sexual desires in the way that the rest of us recognise. And imagine being a a 14-year-old girl or even a 10-year-old girl. (laughs) And all of your friends are talking about boys or girls or boys and girls all the time now as, as, as you get older and it's becoming the major topic of conversation all of the fiction that you read is about you know snogging and, and, and getting off with people and over there and, and you feel none of it how lonely must that be in modern society how lonely must that be <laughs> this isn't a parody this isn't a comic creation it isn't David Brent on steroids this is A self-professed journalist talking about why the girl guides are right to put out silly tweets thanking their asexual volunteers and discussing asexuality with the young girls who attend the guides. This is crazy stuff and it actually gets crazier. You go to your PHSE classes and you learn about same-sex relationships. No one mentions you. No one mentions the asexuals. No one talks about you. You do not have sexual desire. It just doesn't float your boat. It's weird because for the rest of the world, particularly at that age, it's like there is nothing else going on. It, it is as if our hormones are in charge of us. But imagine not having any. So here's the offending tweet. He reads the tweet then that I've just read you. It's, Listen to it. Listen to him read it. It's in support of something called ACE Week. A-C-E. ACE Week. An awareness event for asexuality, acknowledging all members and volunteers who identify as such. It read, this week is hashtag ACE Week. A time to raise awareness and understanding of the asexual community. So here's a shout out to all of our asexual volunteers and members. Thank you for everything you do in Girl Guiding. Oh, Siri, show me innocuous. Please, show me harmless but helpful. Siri? Show me something that acknowledges the existence of people who must count among the most ignored and the most unheard and unacknowledged members of our population. He seems to know an awful lot about asexuality, doesn't he? Until this morning, I didn't know anything about it. That's unbelievable. Who could possibly be cross about that because they're fucking girl guides it's as simple as that what are you asking girl guides to talk about asexuality awareness week who gives a fuck whether a man or a woman or a girl or a boy is interested in sex or not interested in sex you absolute goon of a virtue signaller David Brent on steroids is right how could you have such a lack of self-awareness as to sit on the radio and carry on like that How could you not at any stage become aware of what a complete dickhead you are? It must at some stage dawn on the guy. But it doesn't. I'll tell you. One Twitter user who claimed to be a former patrol leader wrote, there are no words to express her frustration with the group's tweet. Yes. Yes. I understand that. I would imagine if you sent your daughter to Girl Guides, you would expect your daughter to learn all manner of practical things. I I spent a few weeks in the Cubs when I was younger. I didn't last very long at it. And I learned how to tie a reef knot. A reef knot. I was never on a fishing boat in my life, but I learned how to tie a reef knot. So I did. And we played tug of war. And I learned how to do a few crafts and stuff. And I wore a, a, a woggle or a toggle. 
Jesus, Webb, that's dreadful stuff, isn't it? Yes, the girl guides are, well, they're all concerned about their asexual volunteers not being recognised somehow. This is the Richie Allen Show, by the way. If you'd like to comment on that or anything else, you don't have to. Go to richieallen.co.uk. Comment live. You see it there on the menu bar. Have a comment if you feel like it. If you don't, don't. I've got two very good guests today. Lee will be with us shortly from Yorkshire. He's a restaurateur. Did I say that right? And a bit later on, Tony Gosling from Bristol, my old pal. He's been speaking on my programmes since uh, my days in Spain. Great guy. Always interesting is Tony. And there's so much to get into today. Just before I take a tune and move on, I suppose I've got to share with you, just in case you, you haven't read it, that story that was featured in the Times newspaper today. I think the Mail Online picked it up. I grabbed it and wrote about it today as well. Um, This is true. Now, you've heard me talk about the Department for Culture, Media and Sport until a few years ago it published a white paper on a consultation on how to deal with online harms. Now, an online harms bill is making its way through the Parliament at the moment, the UK Parliament, okay? And it aims to tackle how to deal with harm online, mostly to children, but it's expanding out to you know, to encompass how do we deal with harm to anybody, any man, woman or child. The Times has written today, and it's right, I've checked it out, that the the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, the government wants to, wants to make it the law that an online troll could be sentenced to two years in jail for sending a message or posting something that is deemed to be causing psychological harm. And the government or a government spokesperson admitted to the Times that one of the things, you know, that that would be caught up in that is somebody putting out knowingly false communications. For example, anti-vaxxers spreading false information that they know to be untrue. Now, as I've said before, and I don't do this to be an arsehole like O'Brien, I never virtue signal, I'm a complete dipstick me at the best of times. But I won't tell you something that isn't true, I'll never do that. I'll also not exaggerate anything. This is exactly what they want to do. They want to make it illegal to speak out against things like vaccine harm. They want to make it illegal to speak out about climate change or anything else that opposes the agendas that we talk about on this programme and that many other independent content creators have been speaking about for years. This is serious stuff now. It's exactly where I predicted a couple of years ago that this online harms bill would go. And it does represent a direct threat to everybody in this country, regardless of how big or small. Everyone who goes online with their radio programme or with their TV programme, the challenge is the establishment version of events. They're coming for you. They're coming for me. Anybody that does this, they're coming for us. And I don't say that to depress you. It's depressing enough on a Monday with the weather being as it is and everything else, but that's what's happening. And I will be discussing that with uh, Tony Gosling in the second hour. That's right, the second hour, Richie. This is The Romantics, What I Like About You. Back with my first guest after this. Welcome to the programme. Yeah, the romantics, what I like about you on the Richie Allen Show, 26 minutes past five. 
on a dismal day here in the northwest of the country. Thanks for joining me. Lots of comments already on richieallen.co.uk. Comment live at the top of the page. Engage with others. I'm really glad that Lee reached out to the programme. Uh, he's known of the programme for some time and he runs a restaurant in Saltaire in West Yorkshire. He's been doing that for about 30 years. Uh, it must be a good place to eat then. And he said to me in an email that he he notices the media is banging the drums loudly for vaccine passport certificates to be introduced. They're not here in England yet, or they are in Scotland and Wales, but not in England. But Lee feels it's only a matter of time before it comes in. And he's looking at what restaurants like his and what restaurant owners like him can possibly do about that. Um, He said something that was kind of profound to me, I think, in my email. He said, Richie, it's all revealing itself to us now. The government are going to ask me, the restaurateur, to discriminate against the unjabbed, but they would happily vilify vilify me if I discriminate against any colour or creed. You've got that right. Let's welcome to the programme uh, Lee. Lee, how are you? Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on, mate. Really appreciate it. Good to talk to you. No, I appreciate it. I'm loving it. Tell us about the... Um, loving that you came on. Tell us about the restaurant, Lee. Well, um, I've had the restaurant for about 30 years in Saltaire. Started in 1992. Uh, at the time, um, it was uh, a very historic area. Still is, actually. It's got heritage status. Got the mill down here, um, created by Titus Salt. Uh, and at the time, back in 92, I was about the only restaurateur in the area. And uh, over the last 30 years, things have changed drastically. Um, we've got a huge amount of restaurants, bars, bistros, etc. in the area now. And it's uh, one of Bradford's uh, best areas, uh, biggest thriving areas. So it's everything's looking good up here, right? or it was until about two years ago when uh, the world got turned upside down by this supposed pandemic. Yeah. Just to go back to 1992, let me do the curiosity thing, because I love this. It must have been mad, was it? I mean, you were obviously very young when you went into it. You must It must have been a bit of a risk. I bet you it was a buzz at the time, was it, to open a restaurant? Well, yeah, it was. I mean, back in sort of the mid to late 80s, the food revolution, the food revolution took over in this country, and predominantly everything was based down in London. And then it all spread north, Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds, etc. And... Uh, and the whole dining out scene changed. And at uh, 25 years old, yeah, took a risk, took a, a, a big bank loan on. And uh, over the years, I've, I've I've stayed on the same street where I am now, but I've I've, I've changed. I've, I've moved into three different addresses on the street, you know, through expansion. Brilliant. And then 10 years ago, I uh, downsized the restaurant again, back down to a 40 cover restaurant. So I went originally from a 40 cover restaurant, then up to a 90 cover restaurant, and then back down to a 40 cover restaurant. Fantastic. Oh, yeah, it's been it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride over the years, yeah. But yeah, great fun. A uh, lot of heartbreak, a lot of uh, sweat, sweat, blood and tears over it, but uh, no regrets. Did you always know when the critics were in the restaurant? Did you get any clues they were going to be there? And did, no, did you, you never, never know. Really? You never know. To be, and to be honest with you, I don't really pay any attention. You couldn't to care less, could you not? My, my critics and my customers, that's, that's, those are the only people I pay attention to. You know, anybody, any pen pushers that come in that want to slaughter, you know, we've got no time for, to be honest with you. Fair enough. Final question about the restaurant. Go on, give it a plug. What's the name of the restaurant and what, what's the cuisine? What do you serve? Well, it's called La Rue, which uh, will be... Uh, that might, might ring true with your better half. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we, originally when we started in 92, that was the thing. We were, we started off as a little French bistro. But over the years, it's, uh, it's morphed into other things, and we use all different types of influences now, and we sort of prefer to call ourselves a 
contemporary British restaurant now. So, yeah. Brilliantly. Tell us about last year then, when this all kicked off and the lockdown was introduced. What did that mean for you at the time? What happened? Well, you know, I remember the, the you know sort of the sort of murmurings around December, January time when uh, the Corona thing kicked off. Uh, never thinking for a minute that you know we'd seriously go into a lockdown. And uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've been a, a, I've been a, an avid listener of yours for years, and uh, you know, I went down the rabbit hole 15, 20 years ago. So I sort of kind of I was ex- you know, for sort of several years I'd been expecting something big to kick off. Now, whether that came in the shape of an, uh, another massive economic crash, and, and back in 92, I actually set the restaurant up in, 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 in a recession and I've uh, been through a couple since then. So we knew, I, I'd always had a suspicion that something was going to come along, something big was going to hit, but I didn't think it was going to be... Um, in, a, in, in you know in the framework of a virus, I always thought it would just be another e- a, a big economic collapse. And if I'm being really honest with you, when I downsized the restaurant back down in 2011, you know I sort of had it at the back of my mind that I thought, right, I'm going to get myself ready for um, for, for for something you know that, that might happen in the future. Sounds a bit paranoid that, um, but I really felt as though something big was coming along. Well, not now it doesn't. So, uh, it doesn't sound paranoid now when you look at what's happened in the last in the last 18 months, so you you were right to be concerned, Lee. Yeah, absolutely. But even still, you know, I remember the day that it happened, the, I think it was Thursday, the 22nd of March. Uh, that was our last night of trading uh, before we were closed down, and then we weren't allowed to reopen again until sort of June, July time. And then we were open for what, another three months and then shut down for another six months then. So, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a tough time, not just for me, but, you know, businesses like mine, um, and similar businesses, the small business person um, that put, you know, the hard uh, sort of hard twenty thirty years into the into the life, and uh, and for this to come along, just you know, it was just it's been a massive challenge. Obviously, there's been a lot of casualties along the way, yeah. and there still will be. And I, you know, I really fear over the next sort of twelve months that I, you know, I might be one of those. You might struggle yourself. Got asked this, and I don't ask it now in a loaded way, because you will have heard me mention before about businesses. Did did you give any consideration to not closing, to telling them where to go, or was that impossible? And again, no judgment whatsoever from, from me, Lee, because I always say walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. It's easy for me to shout from the sidelines that the country's businesses might have ignored the government. It's easy for me to say that. So you, you're the man, you tell us, did you consider it or was it impossible? Uh, not to start with, no, I'll be honest, no, I didn't. Um, back in March, I thought, because obviously at the time it was two weeks to flatten the curve, wasn't it? So yeah, we never yeah. thought that a three-month lockdown was coming around the corner. So, um, you know, obviously at the time the government made uh, businesses uh, all sorts of promises, financial help and things like that. And I thought, well, I prepared myself um, for long enough. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I've got a good chance of getting through this. I, I didn't have any worries at the time. Um, and to be honest with you, the first three months was a bit of a breeze, and it actually gave me an opportunity to get a lot of things done with the place and sort my life out, Um, and it was a bit of a breather. And plus in that time as well, you know, we set up a bit of an outside catering um, takeout uh, situation that kept us going anyway. It wasn't until the second lockdown kicked in, and when we got to November time, I thought, yeah, here we go, this this is going to be a real problem. 
Um, but, um, you know, I mean, there have been a lot of whispers going around that there might be a third lockdown coming. Now, whether it, whether it happens or not, I don't know. Um, but um, I, I think the third time, I think this, if there is a third lockdown, which I seriously think there might be, I think that's going to ring the death bell for uh, a, a, a lot of businesses like mine. And it's going to get to that crunch time where we think, right, what we're we going to do? You know, we can either go down fighting or we can, uh, when we can stand up and say, no, we're not, we're not going to do this anymore. But, you know, from a legal perspective, you know, and this is why I really got in touch with you. Uh, originally to see you know if 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 there are uh, if there is an illegal advice or anybody listen, that listens to your program that can offer anything from a legal perspective where we might stand if we say no we're not doing it we we're going to we're going to keep things going we're going to keep things open and and, and uh, we're going to carry on going obviously the vaccine passport thing is going to produce a whole set of new challenges because you know i can i, I the, the the thought of of uh, of denying anybody access to my restaurant that's that's, that's not at the job uh, it's just horrific uh, so it's discrimination in, 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 from yeah. every angle it sounds I mean obviously from speaking with you and you've been you know you've been um, an observer of the independent media it would sicken you to do that to say to somebody you can't come in somebody who is perfectly healthy but they don't have uh, the right papers it's kind of hard to even believe that we're talking about this isn't it well, you can't believe it. We just cannot believe that. And it's not just this country; it's worldwide. This is a, this is a worldwide movement, and this is the thing that staggers me. And, and and you know, I've I've been politely talking to people about you know what's going on and what their views are about what's what's been happening over the last twelve months, twelve to eighteen months, and it staggers me the amount of people that are just so not switched on and and and, and can't work out themselves. You know where all this is going and what it's all about. Really, what it's all about. Uh, I mean, we had, um, it was um, the health secretary a couple of days ago, I saw him on the TV, and he, he referred to uh, non-vaxxers as those people. Yeah. And it staggered me, absolutely staggered me. I, you know, I thought, well, if if, if anybody uh, in his position referred to any other ethnicity or uh, any other creed or, or, or race as those people... The world's media would have been down on him like a ton of bricks. There might have been resignations flying all over the place. But for, for, for him to to use that terminology about people that, are, that have not been vaccinated as those people just absolutely knocked me sideways. We'll come back to the passports in a moment. And we'll talk about the, the legal thing again, because I would put it out to our listeners who might be in businesses, whether it's a business like Lee's or another business. And, you know, you might want to get together in the event that, like Lee says, he's heard some whispers. The, the whispers you heard, would they be local politicians that might be whispering about future lockdowns or, or local authority yeah, people? It's, it's actually it's people that have, have connected to uh, the council. Um, don't want to give any names. No, no, you don't like have that, to. But, but yeah. yeah, it's there, there, there are, there are uh, people that have actually been, and also people that work for the NHS that say that they're sort of quietly preparing um, for another lockdown. Um, it's uh, nothing's been revealed yet, but they are, you know, secretly pre pre preparing for something like this that might be coming down the pipeline. Yeah. And you know, you know what I would say to you ordinarily is, I would say, well, look, their their own narrative is falling apart because the the cases are not, you know, resulting in hospitalizations. It's just not happening, and all of that. So it looks good. Um, they're saying the jobs are having 
you know, more success against against serious illness. Now, I don't believe any of that, but that's what they're saying. So I would say to you, you know, if I was to oppose what you said about lockdown, I would say, oh, well, no, no, by their own figures at the moment, and even Boris Johnson is saying it all looks good, it all looks good. However, the reason I think you're probably right is because the jab mandate is going to have a massive impact on senior citizens this winter. It's going to mean that many of them who are in hospital with pneumonia or very bad flu, they won't be as easily um, discharged as they would in other years because of the shortage of care home workers and also because of the shortage of nurses and doctors in hospitals. You're going to see a huge crisis in terms of bed blockage and, and lack of availability of beds. And I think at that stage, there's a very good chance that you'll be right and your contacts will be right and they will announce another lockdown. So you're right to be uh, thinking about it and thinking about what you might do to keep your business open. That's how I see it anyway. It doesn't mean I'm right, Lee, but that's how I see it. Yeah, I see it that way as well. I mean, every step along the way, the government's lied, completely lied from start to finish. Boris Johnson, you know, I, 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 I just can't understand how people don't, you, they just don't realise and they can't see through the lies and the deceit, the manufacturing, the false PCR tests, the false positives, everything about it. I mean, we've got a, we've got a testing station around the corner from me, and this, it's in a car, it's up in a car park, and there's absolutely nobody in it. it there's nobody in it, but you know the, the the figures that they're pushing out every day that you know there's hundreds of thousands of people testing positive for it. It's just it's just to maintain the narrative and keep the fear going. It's, it's to keep people frightened to death. I mean, you, you see people still walking around with masks. I mean, to be honest with you, Richard, right from the start of this, you know, I obviously, you, I, we thought this, the, the, yeah, we, we gave them the benefit of the doubt that, that there was something out there. But right from the start of it, I, yeah, I refused to wear a mask. You know, I, I, I got a couple of lanyards for me and my son. Um, and, and, and I've tried my best, in all honesty, to try, to try and get the COVID. Uh, I, I've, I've sailed all the way through the last two years without so much, <laughs> yeah. as, so much as, uh, as a sniffle. Right. So, but yeah, it's uh, it's the it, the media is the problem, isn't it? You know, the mainstream media is the problem. My TV has not been turned on for eighteen months. Switched it firmly off, and uh, and it's uh, and, and 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 even in the car, you know, with uh, the, uh, the the local news on on the radio stations, I switched them off. I mean, I I, I tend to listen to talk sport through the day anyway, which is predominantly a, a, a sports station. But even that, it's all over that now, and it's 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 it's, it's painful to listen to. It is painful to listen to. Spare a thought for me and others like me who are exposed to it uh, pretty much um, every hour of every day. Lee is on the line from Saltaire. Uh, he's got a restaurant called LaRue there. Pop in and say hello to him, by the way, if you're in the area and you listen to this programme. Reached out to us last week to talk about his concerns that there may very well be a lockdown this coming winter and that he would be horrified to ask somebody for a, for a, for a vaccine passport before admitting them uh, to uh, to his restaurant to sit down and have a meal. There's, there's a pretty big reaction to this on my website. Uh, Lola says, register yourself and your business under common law at commonlawcourt.com. Maybe, Lola. I've never put a lot of faith in the common law movement, but that's not to criticise your comment at all. I'm just saying I don't know. Maybe Lee might look into it. Alan says uh, he's not a lawyer, but if MPs have used the Human Rights Act regarding disclosing their jab status, then surely another part of it could be used in defence to keep a business open. That's another thing. We have laws that protect people in this country when it comes to divulging their medical information. 
the laws are clear and they're not just British laws, they're international laws. I have no business asking you, Lee, whether you've had a vaccine or not. I've got no business asking you, did you ever have pneumonia? Did you ever have this? It's none of my bloody business. You shouldn't be divulging that information to anyone. That's getting lost, I think, um, in in uh, in the last 18 months. Is that absolute truth? Lucy says there's a woman... Now, it's funny enough because um, Jackie Devoy, who's a, a journalist and a friend, mentioned this lady to me, but I've not come across her. There is a woman called Anna Du... Uh, sorry, Anna de Brusseret, I think, or de, de Brusseret. She's a British lawyer. There are videos of her on YouTube and Odyssey. Might be worth looking into. And uh, yeah, lots of comments on, on, on this. Just unimaginable that you would have to employ somebody because you couldn't do it. You'll be busy enough in the kitchen or, 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 or uh, you know, or, or, or bussing tables or whatever. But that you might have to employ somebody to stand at the door and to say to people, can I, you know, as the old war movies we used to watch, era papira bitte. You know, your papers, please. I, I, I can't, even though we've expected this, Lee, I just can't get my head around this. I really can't. That's terrific. I mean, it's happening everywhere. You know, overseas, in France, you know, on the continent, in New York. You know, you hear that, you know, restaurants are suffering over there to the extent of they've lost sort of 40 to 50% of the business. Now, if that happens to us, or any business on my street, because we're not all restaurants and bars anywhere. I mean, we've got we've got lots of other different types of businesses down here, but... But if, you know, in terms of the leisure sector, if you've got to start showing your papers on the door, you, you know, it's, if we lose somewhere near 30 to 40% of business on a weekly basis, then that's it. That's over for most of us. You know, we operate on fine margins anyway. You know, we're not greedy people. We don't make a load of money out of this sector. You know, we make a living. But um, you know, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much of a drop in turnover for 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 for, for businesses like mine to, to just not exist anymore. So, um, and you have staff. But, you have staff as yeah, well yeah, who staff, depend yeah, on you. I mean, yeah. I mean, luckily enough, I mean, most of my staff are part time anyway, and they're all kids that are at university or college. So, you know, it wouldn't take much for them to to find alternative jobs anyway. I mean, before lockdown, three girls that worked for me all went into the care sector. Um, as full-time uh, carers, so I, and uh, so you know, people do move around within the labour market, but uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's horrific. It's absolutely horrific. What's Who's your on? MP, Lee? Who's your MP? I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. With you. I don't know what he's called, Richard Green. I don't. I, do you know what, Richie? Yeah, I, I, I don't really place much stock in MPs. Uh, I understand or, or, perfectly. Know, I think they're absolutely complete and utter waste of space. I mean, you would have thought really that they might have been down the street knocking on doors just to see how we're going on. Yeah. But, you know, you don't see. You know, you're not, never going to see people like this. The, the reason I asked was, and I don't blame you for not knowing either. When I was in South Manchester, I struggled to remember. Uh, who the MP was, so uh, so I have no problem with that. But but I, I asked because if it's a Tory, I was wondering would it be one of those COVID sceptic or lockdown sceptic backbench MPs there? But but even if it is, it wouldn't make a bloody difference anyway. Uh, the way things are well, going, so yeah, I think he is a Conservative, um, and I know where the local Conservative office is um, in in Chipley, which is which is all part of the Saltair district. Um, yeah, it might be it might be worth me, you know, maybe emailing or something like that, and to see you know where he stands and you know what the official response would be to an inquiry like this. But uh, you know, we we'll wait and see what happens. Um, I'm just sort of tentatively speaking to a lot of my neighbours now. I mean, I've got coffee shops either side of me, 
uh, and we've got several other establishments like mine uh, uh, on the street anyway. So you're feeling I think that the time is approaching quickly where we need to, you know, maybe have a meeting, knock heads together, and see, you know, what our approach is going to be to all this. Should 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 this happen? Yeah, kind of feeling feeling them out that if it came to it, it's a case of. Um, Right, neighbours, what do you think? Will we stand together and, and just keep going because we can't afford to lose our businesses? It's a good yeah, idea. It's all, a good idea, Lee. Yeah, I mean, I, the, everybody sort of, we, we sort of, sort of left dangling a little bit. We don't really know, you know, what the right approach is at this moment in time because we've not, I suppose, really, if they make the decision, it's going to come down like a ton of bricks. It's not that I don't think they're going to pre warn us, I think it's just going to happen. You know, like lockdown happened, and 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 then you know we we're left with the effects of it, and it's sink or swim time. Um, and uh, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm actually trying to diversify my business now. You know, in in terms of the uh, daytime operation with it, just so that I've you know I've I've not got um, too much invested in the restaurant, and I can sort of diversify into other areas. And that's what really, you know, if you if you're sort of planning for the next 12 months, that's what you've got to do now. You've got to look at other areas of, of revenue just to stay afloat and keep a roof over your head. So, yeah, but I mean, at the moment, you know, my restaurant is my home as well. So if I lose the restaurant, I lose my home. I've lost 30 years of work and uh, I'm, 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 I'm on the street. I'm homeless. And your business is your baby. That means something to you, doesn't it? You've put 30 years into it. You're obviously very proud of it and what you've yeah. achieved with it. So, the thoughts that somebody could take it away. It's one thing to lose a business because you made some bad decisions or because there was an economic downturn or something else, you know. But to, to for it to be threatened by this tyranny, I can only imagine, and I, I can only imagine because I don't know how it feels, um, it must feel dreadful. And you're a man too, you know. We're men. And, you know, I know what Yorkshire men are like. I, I, I do. I'm not generalising. You want to stand up to it. You want to tell these people to go and take a run and jump. You want to, you know, you want to to confront them. But it's so insidious, so much of this. Like you just said, it could be the flick of a switch in in late November or in mid-December when they just say, right, that's it, bang, you've got to close. But, um, yeah. yeah, and it's your life, 30 years, next year it'll be 30 years. Yeah, I can't 30 imagine years, how you 30 feel. years uh, next year in March, March April time when we when we opened in '92. So yeah, it's uh, it's been a long old road. Yeah, I've put hundreds of thousands of pounds into these businesses, and uh, for it all to go through no fault of our own, and I'm not the only one. And, and, and let's be honest, you know, I'm still going. You know, there are hundreds of thousands of businesses that have already gone, and people that have probably lost their homes as well, their livelihoods and everything. Do you know of businesses and, in Shipley, Lee? Do you know of businesses, whether it be pubs or coffee shops that have gone under? I know two pubs locally here. Yeah, so I know one that or two gone. pubs, Richie. We've had, um, uh, we've got, had three. I mean, I'm, the, the, the street that I'm on, we've got about, uh, on my on my side of the road, we've got 24 shops. Um, and on, on the opposite side of the street, there's probably about 15 to 20 shops. On my side of the street, we've had three that have gone in the last two or three months. Um, an estate agent, um, a hairdresser's and a shoe, sh- a shoe shop. And I don't think it'll be the last of it, to be honest with you. I think there's, there's, there's a few whispers along the street that a few people are hanging on by the fingernails. Final word to you, Lee. I, let me just, before, let me quickly sum up. Lee is the manager-owner of LaRue Restaurant in Saltaire in Chipley 2, pop in and have a cup of coffee or have a bite to eat 
uh, with Lee. If you're in the area and you listen to the show, go and say hello to him. Um, Lee is interested in what can businesses like his do legally? Uh, you know, are there lawyers, are there, I should say, solicitors that are interested in taking up these cases? Should the likely lockdown arrive again this winter and should vaccine passports be, be rolled out? Um, I suppose there's an email address for the restaurant, is there, that maybe people might reach out and say hello to you? Yeah, well, if, if people just want to use my, my personal email address, uh, do, you, do you want me to give you it? Or if you're OK uh, doing that, you don't have to, but if you want to do that, it's up to you. Yeah, my, well, my email address is wellslee, that's W-E-L-S-L-E-E, 66 at gmail.com. Um, but yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sort of speaking on behalf of, you know, several other business people on, on the street that are all sharing the same concerns as me about, you know, you know, what the next sort of six to 12 months is going to bring. So, so yeah, any, 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 any information, any help would be, would be really, really, really welcome. Let me read the email address again. You did a good job of it, but I'll repeat it. No harm. Wells, Lee, W E. W E L S Lee L E E sixty six at gmail dot com. If you're in Yorkshire, if you're in London, doesn't matter where you are, and your business is being affected by this, as it will be, uh, and you want to reach out to Lee, and if you're a solicitor that's interested in, you know, doing some pro bono work, Jesus, if you're a barrister uh, that's interested in doing some pro bono work and doing the right thing, it's Wells Lee sixty six at gmail dot com. Larue Restaurant in Saltair in uh, in in Shipley. Listen, the best of luck with it, and I know you'll stay in touch with me through email and let us know of any uh, developments. I'll give you the final word, mate, and thanks for reaching out to the programme. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, uh, listen, it's not just me. We, you think of our industry now, the hospitality industry nationwide in this country. I mean, we are a massive, massive employer, and we create huge, a huge revenue stream um, for the country, uh, employ a ridiculous amount of people. And uh, you know we we we're all we're all going to be fighting for our lives because we just you know we don't know we don't know where we're going with it and uh, it's we've all got a very uncertain future so um, so yeah we all need to stick together don't we? Absolutely right. You enjoy your night off. And, yeah, just uh, one more thing. Richard. Yes, Listen, mate, go if ahead. You, um, if you're ever in the area and you fancy a night out, there's a table in the restaurant for you anytime you want to call, pal. Uh, legendly, thanks very much. I'll take no, you up on you. that. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lee. That was lovely. Lee Wells there. Lee is the manager, owner, the proprietor of LaRue Restaurant in Saltaire in Shipley. You heard him there saying, concerned about lockdown, vaccine passports, looking for people to reach out to him, legal people maybe, other businesses who are worried as well and who want to stand up to it. It's uh, wellslee66 at gmail.com. Big thanks to Lee for coming on the programme uh, today. It is Monday's Richie Allen Radio Show. It's the 1st of November. November put my teeth in, uh, 2021. Tony Gosling will be on the programme right soon. You don't want to miss him. Always love having Tony on. And uh, I'll be reading your comments in a moment when I come back. The Richie Allen Show features doctors, scientists, academics and researchers who have been banned by the legacy media. Support Richie now by making a financial contribution at richieallen.co.uk. Lovely. I'll take a tune then. Here's Jamiroquai or Jamaraki, as they used to say back in the day when they couldn't pronounce it. It's a tune called Cosmic Girl. Richie Allen Show Monday, live from BBG Towers here in Salford. With me, your BBG. Thanks for being with me. Cosmic Girl from Jamiroquai. I'm still a bit coffee. I'm still a bit coffee and wheezy, but uh, I'll get over it, I suppose. 
Melissa sends this message, and it's interesting. Do tell us a bit more, Melissa. Now is the time, she says, to support our local farmers. I volunteer and I get food for my time. Tell me a bit more about that, Melissa. I'm thinking of articles I saw in The Telegraph and in The Times newspaper about two weeks ago where farmers, I think southern-based farmers, were complaining that because of Brexit and because of Covid, they didn't have their usual complement of pickers, people to pick vegetables and to pick fruits and all sorts of stuff like that. I don't know if it's somehow related to that. Uh, volunteering and getting food for your time. Tell us more about that, Melissa. Might like to get into that on the programme, you know. Somebody says, somebody going by the name of Alice Cooper, can't imagine it's the real Alice Cooper, says, uh, Richie, we have to start thinking beyond government. What do we need governments for? What does government do except steal and lie? Do you feel you need to be governed? And Steve says he's been trying to reach out to me regarding a guest. I will go and look for your message, Steve. I get a lot of them, obviously, through the website. I'll go and try and find yours. And I will take a look at that. Thank you very much. Alex says that common law will not help you whilst you're living under a corrupt and criminal system. Uh, the courts will laugh you out of the dock, stealing what little you have left. If you try any of that nonsense, says Alex. Yes. Somebody called Backbeat says, with all due respect, nobody will miss estate agents. That's <laughs> true. Aye. Martin says, before long, the elites will be advertising. We buy any pub com. Coming soon to the mainstream media. No doubt, says Martin. Yeah. No doubt. Lucy says, unfortunately, these people don't care about the real everyday people. No, they don't. Social disobedience, says Dolores. That's the thing to do. Yes. Social, non-violent civil disobedience. I've been beating or bleating, beating that drum or bleating on about that for many years. No doubt about that. Caroline Beatty says Tom Barnett explains how to bypass this nonsense for businesses. Please watch as I've used contract law myself to fend off these pirates. That's Caroline. So you might want to look up Tom Barnett, maybe on BitChute or Odyssey or maybe on YouTube. Uh, you could post the link, Caroline, if you like, to the comment live and make it easier for people if you want to do that. Hi to Colin in Kerry. Hi to Max Lockdown, who also mentions the lawyer Anna de Buisseret. I can only guess Buisseret or Buisseret. Uh, she's in Brighton. And Max Lockdown has put a link to Anna on the comment live page there. Thank you for doing that. That's always helpful there. Seamus Connolly says, Richie, considering the restrictions that are penciled in for the internet of the near future and the potential to crack down on anything that doesn't fit into the coming lexicon of the new world order, could you ask Tony what are his views on how we would then express free speech and opinion to a wider audience. Well, Seamus, that's the $64 million question, isn't it? With the internet crackdown in full swing, and it will peak, I think, sometime in the early new year, what else is there to do, really? Publish a book and distribute it? Well, none of the high street retailers, let alone any of the online retailers, they won't carry it for you. 
What are you going to do? Go out in a car and give it to people? Maybe. Would you be stopped? Maybe. I don't know. Craig answered that. A question from Seamus. How we express free speech to a wider audience. Craig says you do it very quietly around only very trusted people. Anything else risks offending someone who could report you to the police. There is that, of course. These are the times. Uh, again, if you haven't read that story, go to my website, richieallen.co.uk. Trolls face two years in prison. Yes, for publishing information deemed to be harmful. It's not a joke. They are really planning to do this. So in the near future, say a guy like me, and of course it isn't about me, and you you know that I never make it about me. I'm just one of many independent content creators. But in the near future, I would not be able to bring a doctor on to talk about the harms being caused by the COVID jabs because that would be illegal. That would be deemed to be harmful, psychologically harmful to people. Therefore, it would have to be stopped. And that's the road we're going down. What time is it, by the way? I do drone on, you know. It's uh, two minutes past six, that's the one. It's uh, actually nearly three minutes past six. This Monday, Tony is standing by. So we'll get him on, shall we? Shall I get him on right now and not take a tune? Will I do that? I'll do that. I'm sure we'll we'll get more time out of Tony then. Well, he's based in Bristol. He's uh, somebody I have a lot of time for. He's a terrific journalist. It's an oft-used term these days, is the term journalist. Often used, overused, he's a genuine one. And um, he's the host of The Politics Show. Uh, Thisweek.org.uk. He used to be a BBC a journalist at one time. Uh, he's got an impeccable record as far as I'm concerned. Let's uh, welcome back to the programme, the one and only, the Tony Gosling. Yeah, well, I'll uh, see if I can't, uh, don't, I can't, don't spoil that tonight, my impeccable record. Because, you know, of course, you put one foot wrong and everyone will come down on you like a ton of bricks. I mean, my BBC time started in 1989 at this place called Greater London Radio, which was a newsroom in Marylebone High Street, which was still not long after the sacking of the Director General Alistair Milne and the John Burt era of the BBC, which was really the, uh, you know, he very quickly put some really hideous people in charge of BBC management who went through getting rid of all the decent uh, you know, top editors of various strands in the corporation, including drama and, you know, and current affairs. And slowly but surely from the top down, the BBC began to die. Uh, and so I was there, I suppose, what, two years after he'd started. And, um, you know, so there were still a lot of good people around. And, and also I was, in a way, it's a sort of curse, really. You know, I think actually, no, it's a privilege to have done that sort of job, but to have actually witnessed it firsthand, there's very few people have done that, Richie. No, there, I don't know if anybody else has been there through that transitional uh, period. We can come back to that during the course well, of this I think conversation. Plenty of plenty of people who were there, but not that can speak openly no. about it. I think you know, there's still people who are working there now, probably. Well, I'm sure there are. Uh, that knew what happened, but you know they have to make a choice between keeping their jobs and maybe doing something which is potentially useful, like that amazing BBC two-part program about eugenics, which was on a, a few months ago. So I mean, it's not all totally, you know, bad and terrible. Although we like to throw 
mud at these people. They are, you know, we like to shoot the messenger in the case when we're having to pay a license fee. Yeah. But, you know, the alternative is a private system which can just be bought up by anybody, you know, shareholders. And at least there is a, you know, tiny bit of accountability within the BBC, particularly out in the regions and places far away from, you know, the central control. You still do get a little bit of real journalism. And there's a wonderful side to it all, which is you can pick up the phone and phone in. Uh, you know, yeah. it's live on the BBC. You can say what you want. You really can. So, you know, the, the, the ITV don't provide or, or the independent and the commercial stations don't provide that. No. Obviously you do. <laughs> I do. My phone-ins are hilariously funny at times and, and, and incredibly educational because I often find that the listeners are often better informed than some of the guests that I have on present well, company, that, You know, well, that sounds included. like BBC Question Time, doesn't yeah, it? You it, know, the it panel does. seems to be the biggest <laughs> bunch of numpties ever. And, you know, I watch it some week, most weeks I'll watch, and usually within the first minute or so, is there anybody that's actually got, a, uh, you know, more than one or two brain cells and actually thinks for themselves on this panel? And most of the time there isn't, including, of course, the chair, Fiona Bruce, yeah. who was brought in before all this COVID stuff, who is really, you know, much better placed on antiques roadshow she doesn't know anything about anything apart how to make how to make bad jokes and she certainly doesn't isn't able to pull up any of these politicians uh they just pull the wool over her eyes all the time and you know we need to have somebody like dimbley back who for all his faults a bullying in club and all you know he he at least would pull up all sides he really would you he know, would ask anybody questions. who was on there who said something which didn't make sense he'd pull them up on it we don't get any of that anymore would you be aware, I think you are, that when you were witnessing the transition from journalism to propaganda at the BBC, the exact same process was happening at the Irish National Broadcaster, RTE, at the exact same time? And I know that to be true. Are you aware of that? Not, no, not really. I don't know much about RTE, only that it's uh, an interesting model and uh, that it's commercially funded, but they've got a, an absolute firewall between the people who do the advertising and the people who decide on what's going to be, you know, the producers and the editorial yeah. side. In of theory. Yeah. Yeah, in theory, yeah. Of course, theory, then, of course yeah. what you can do is you can put foreign agents, if you want, you know, in, in charge of uh, the editorial, in, in which case you don't need to have the firewall. Absolutely right, Tony. I've got to ask you this. We're going to talk COVID, obviously. We'll talk a little bit about um, Barclays Bank and Jeffrey Epstein. We'll talk about anything you want to talk about because it's your hour, really. I get to opine all the time. But let me, let me kick off with this because this is massive. It's not anything we didn't expect, but it is massive because it's in black and white now. The online harms bill, which is going through Parliament, uh, the Times has learned that it proposes making quote, a knowingly false communication offence punishable by two years in prison. This is no joke. And the government sources the Times spoke to, uh, they told the Times, did these government sources, that an example of that would be where somebody sends uh, anti-vaccine information. Now, this is what we thought would happen. I think when we first began speaking, when I was based in Spain many years ago, we looked at the potential for a world like this where your opinions, even if they were based on your own personal experiences, might be penalised if they were deemed to be harmful to the wider well, public. What, what if I are. say, for example, that Boris Johnson's testicles hang inside his armpits? <laughs> 
you know, uh, are we not yeah. allowed? Satire is supposed to be dead, is it? So no, yeah. no, no more not the nine o'clock news, no more the day to day and Chris Morris. Is that what they're saying? Because you know, I what I like to do, and in fact I think it's quite important, is to sprinkle a little bit of satire amongst the po-faced, stuffy, you know, uh, hard analysis. And if you can't do that, this is not, and you know, this is not the free speech at all, is it? What they're doing, of course, is they're, you know, let's call it what it is. It's fascism. This is fascism. And what they're saying is that uh, the big corporations have decided how everything's going to be. Prince Charles up at COP26 has decided the way things are going to be. We have decided everything. And if you speak against it, uh, then you're a criminal. And actually, this is China, because we know, don't we, that the President Xi is very much like the Pope. Uh, you know, he is. If you speak against him, then you can be arrested. In fact, uh, you know, even if you laugh at the national anthem, you can be arrested. If you criticise the policies, you can be arrested. And that is the way we're going with this online house bill. There's so, far too much going on at the moment, Richie, which smacks of authoritarian uh, stuff, which has been trialled successfully in China, is now being brought to the West. So it's not a case of green-eyed monsters in terms of our politicians over the years, various parties, various academics. It's not a case of them looking on with envy. They've always wanted to bring about this type of way of life in this country, haven't they? Because everything that's happened in the last 25 years, step by step, it all connects really uh, to where we are now. At least I think so. Well, step by step, yeah. But I mean, I think we have to just break it down a little bit. So, uh, for example, you can see the way that uh, fascist governments operate. Um, for example, P2 in Italy with Licio Gelli chairing the uh, P2 uh, lodge in Italy, which really had it had the top bankers, the top uh, media owners. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the owners of the presses and the transmitters, not the journalists, obviously, uh, and senior po- politicians in all the different parties. Um, it was, I mean, industrialists, people who owned lots and lots of shares, uh, uh, industry, they would sit around at this big country house and they would decide which of the prime ministers was going to be uh, allowed to form a government. And if it looked like the wrong guy was turning up, um, uh, they would be arrested or they would actually, what, would be, you know, what they do is they discuss it right. One of your counter gangs, a fake organisation called the Red Brigades, which was run actually by the far right, uh, even though the left, left wingers that were part of it didn't realise that um, they they went and kid, kidnapped Aldo Moro uh, and executed him, and he was going to be the prime minister. He was, was a communist, you know, so he was at least going to be involved in the government. And so they had we were going to have a very left wing government. The CIA didn't want it. The fascists in Italy didn't want it. And that's how they do things from behind the scenes. And they've been watching the way things are going. They've been infiltrating and taking over the parties. I think one of the big things of the 20th century actually is the uh, massive amount behind the scenes of corporate takeovers going on. So people have been had their eyes on big corporations that are a competition uh, to the transna- the big transnationals that are already part of the sort of Bilderberger system or whatever you want to call them. They're already part of a, a ruling elite that, that, that despises democracy, etc. Is they see what, what's out there that's in competition with them and then they have 
covert operations to take those over, take those organisations over. There, some of it will be through buying up shares in a business. Others will be discrediting, possibly even murdering members of the board of that company. And one by one, bit by bit, in all the key industries, uh, there is no longer any competition. And what you end up with is a kind of cartel system. This is the the fourth right. I call it Richie. I mean, actually, if you look at what happened uh, at the end of the Second World War, uh, it quite clearly seems to me that that's exactly what they were planning. The Third Reich dissolved, and, and, and after World War II, a financial Fourth Reich started to appear. And that's, I think, what we're dealing with now. It's the same sort of Nazi mentality, but these are people in suits, in boardrooms, without their you know SS uniforms on anymore. And that kind of takeover of business and turning corporations into cartels, is that important? Is that, in your opinion, is that central to how they will push this climate agenda in because they're they're talking constantly today and by they I mean delegates uh, journalists so-called scientists are saying that business that the corporate sector will have to carry this climate agenda so is that married to what's happened to businesses and corporations is it all connected do you think to climate yeah change? i think i think so they, they, these people have decided they want nuclear power because it doesn't need you know you don't need to have thousands of people working underground in order to dig the coal out or anything like that you just have a couple of guys sitting in a control room pressing a few buttons they want to demand everything i mean this is very similar to what we saw uh, in the agricultural revolution all those years ago isn't it when you got you know thousands of people working on the land you know growing carrots and potatoes and God, yeah. whatever it was actually probably wasn't potatoes originally was it but um you know the, the this this very very labor intensive thing called agriculture uh, where a lot of people were involved in it and what they did is they enclosed the villages that well uh, privatized the villages they knocked down the, the houses in the enclosures and um, but drove the people out so they could replace them with sheep which were very very easy you know you stick the sheep out there they wander around they munch you know and at the end of the year you gather them in and you slaughter them and you've made a fortune and also you've got the wool as well so they were just looking they're just looking now i think in the energy world uh, uh, a new new ways of doing things which don't require people you know that they can a nuclear power station could just run on its own the fact that it, uh, you know, it's it, it it's costs billions to deal with the waste afterwards is rather suspect. Of course, it means that they don't really care about that. They're just going to bury it in the ground and forget about it and hope that no future generations are blighted by it, which, of course, they probably will be. So I think that's largely what it's about. And the other thing is, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the, the 1970s and the 1980s coal strikes and how, you know, this was seen right across the country as a hideous imposition you know this was an amazing industry uh, that was out there that was just being absolutely sacrificed without really any you know economic reason for it because the coal miners had, had done a terrific job in making a great safe industry with providing amazing amounts of uh, fuel for the nation uh, and making sure that we had energy security into the indefinite future and yet this industry was smashed to pieces because it was you know, it was other. It wasn't the government couldn't say you're going to do this, you're going to do that, because they had very powerful unions that would say, well, hang on a minute. That means that, you know, we, more of us might die if we do that, if it's a, if it's something that's unsafe. And they would managed to fight for decent conditions. So it wasn't a pleasant job, but they, they could do it with dignity. And this was, for, for my 
childhood absolutely associated with the the the, the fight the uh, plight of the miners versus the thatcher government particularly and uh, then what we've seen now is the whole thing's turned around where the miners are the bad guys coal is evil i just i just think this is part of a much longer term agenda uh the, the stuff that's going on up in glasgow and of course we've got the oligarchy of the planet there one of the most fascinating things i think is the non-appearance of biden because he can't go you know how could he be there without she and Putin? It's, it starts then to look very much like a kind of NATO fest with all the rich and powerful of the NATO yeah. countries, as usual, the usual suspects, getting together against the other parts of the world, and it becomes very partisan. They don't want that. You know, they want to make it look as if this is a fantastic little project that we're up to, and oh, please, all the whole of the world, please come and get on board. You know, Greta is our leader, and she can uh, show us the way. And I, I just think that the Chinese and the Russians are looking at this and saying, well, you know, if you make sure there's not going to be a war in the Middle East, then maybe we'll think about coming. But actually, that's far more important to us is we don't want to have a, uh, a world war with you guys. And if you start to calm down in the South China Sea uh, and in Israel against Iran, then maybe we'll think about coming to your little climate fest. You think there might have been some bargaining. Just to say, Biden is there in Glasgow and he did speak today. You do know that, don't you? I did well. He wasn't there. Okay, so I didn't know he was coming. Yeah. I mean, okay, so I thought he was. Yeah. Okay, so I, I got that completely wrong. No, no, Sorry. it's all right. I, I, I make a thousand mistakes today. I thought today. he wasn't. And, yeah, he's there. Uh, and yeah. I was. I'm, I'm really surprised that he has come because now it does start to look like that, doesn't it? It really looks. Yeah, you as could if definitely just the usual suspects getting together. You could not, definitely not the, make uh, that argument. The other side at all. You could, and you've made that argument eloquently, and I can see that argument, and I, I could certainly buy into it. Tony Gosling is our guest. Before we talk a little bit more about that, a long-term agenda. What, 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 look, what does the world look like at the end of it? What does the agenda, if those behind it, get their way? What will it be then? You know, what will our what will life be like on planet Earth if well, they succeed? Well, ask Prince Charles, right? Good old Charlie, right? The wife murderer. Well, he didn't actually do the murder himself. He made sure that she was out of the way because she was, uh, you know, she had all the inside gen on the way the royal family operates and she had to be dis dispatched. I've got no doubt about that after having looked at John Morgan's brilliant work on the, you know, the police reports, the inquest. I'm not just, you know, just saying it for the hell of it. Yeah. No, uh, um, also, I mean, he's, there's there's so much, you know, so many problems that there've been on Charles's estates, various people dropping dead and things like that. But anyway, that that aside, he's made it absolutely clear. He thinks that in order for mankind to continue, we need to have four planets like Earth. What he's making absolutely clear is rather similar to, you know, is it Alan Titchmarsh? No, actually, no. He's been replaced by. Um, David Attenborough, hasn't he? So yeah. it's all these kind of friends of Charles that get put up on the stage, you know, celebrity friends of Charles. Uh, so he, what he's suggesting is that we're going to have to get rid of 75% of the world's population. Well, but has know, he actually he, said that? Well, he said that we, we need... To, what he said is, let's be clear, he said four, we need four planets like Earth to survive. Now, well, that's just rubbish, absolute rubbish. What we need is we need... Uh, we need the food to go to the people that need it and we need the resources to be shared out equally particularly land you know so the reason that, that for example that the if you look around the world some parts of europe for example have got a, 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 a population that's falling these are generally places where the, the living conditions are very good so you know if you've got a decent standard of living and a, a, you know a, bit, a little bit of money in your pocket at the end of the week 
you don't tend to have loads of kids. Well, if you're up against it and, you know, you're, be, you're getting a hostile environment from your government, uh, bullying, and you can't pay the rent, this sort of thing, so you, you have a very uncertain future, then you do have lots of children. And this is, you know, this is a basic fact that these people, with all their money and brains, seem to have completely missed. Well, of course, they haven't completely missed it. They're, they just don't want to hear that because it doesn't fit with the agenda that they want, which is further control and and penalising people for having access to energy to be able to get around. You know, so I've got very, very little sympathy for, you know, anything really that's going up, up in uh, Glasgow and particularly see Charles as a... Well, I mean, isn't it interesting the way the Queen didn't go? I mean, she realises just how incredibly political this is. And I think she's been very wise to come up with some sort of, well, you know, who knows, maybe it's real. But I think it's much more likely it's some sort of little excuse. Oh, the Queen's not feeling well. She's got to go to hospital. She can't go to Glasgow. I don't think she buys into it at all. And she realises she's a fairly um, wily person. She's pretty sharp, Richie. And I think she's, she's looking the devil at thinking, well... Do I really want to? Do I really want to be embroiled in this, you know, faux NATO, you know, bun fest up at, uh, you know, sticky bun affair with loads of people slapping each other on the back? But at the end of the day, she's looking out, I think, for the international consequences of this, um, and and I don't, don't know if she necessarily buys into it at all. There's lots of people, that, you know, in the wealthy classes, uh, and in the not so wealthy classes in Britain that don't buy into the whole, whole idea of, yeah. you know, we've got to climate, climate crisis, uh, yeah. massively cut down air energy use no it, what we need to do well we, that would be helpful but we certainly don't need to cover all our fields in solar panels uh, and build more nuclear power stations you know we well we could cut down on our energy use fine and stop a bit of pollution but it certainly isn't like what, if, what is it boris said 10 seconds to midnight yeah, a minute, a minute, you know a minute this to midnight. is just stupid infantile scare tactics that you know we've had it time and time again i've looked With into their, this tony I, i've looked into this over the years extensively you see as somebody who was on the left i, I mean i'm not on any side now but as somebody whose politics was trade unionism and and the old labor left I suppose, not the old Labour lift, but in my case in Ireland, it would have been the Socialist Workers' Party. It would have been Sinn Féin. It would have been the Workers' Party when I was growing up. So I, at one time, bought into it because it's pigeonhole politics. You know, if you're a member of certain parties, well, you get your politics given to you. You get your ideas given to you. And and in the late 90s, I bought into this garbage. But I've looked into it, and I looked into it objectively for years and years and years. And it comes down to a few very simple truths for me that can't be disputed. The atmosphere is made up of 0.04% carbon. It's disputed as to how much of the 0.04% humans actually contribute. It's somewhere between 10% and 30%. The the sun is never factored into any of the climate models, which is preposterous. So as far as I'm concerned, it's one massive, gigantic hoax and that we, as as a species, cannot impact the climate on uh, this planet that is largely driven by the sun and by the oceans and what happens at the bottom of the oceans. Am I wrong? Do you see, is there any truth at all, in your opinion, to the claim that our activities on on Earth are contributing somehow to its demise? No, I don't think there is, really. And yeah. um, uh, the, let's, let me just cite, I mean, one of the, uh, on, on last Friday's programme, I had a clip from a uh, Channel 4 documentary, which came out, I think it was in 2007, called The, 
the great global warming swindle and i'd recommend absolutely everyone to watch it because these are the people who are completely shut out of the debate rather like uh, you know the people who are arguing for the using ivermectin etc being shut out of the covid yeah. debate there is absolutely nobody who is saying all this stuff who are coming out with treatment protocols for covid or who are critiquing um global warming and climate change, they're just simply not allowed anywhere near the television studios, the radio studios. If anybody, and I listen quite intently to this, you know, if you see anybody, even someone phoning in, a punter phoning in and talking about any of this stuff, they immediately get shut down. They get counter arguments put over as if, you know, they're about to break the law, you know, by uh, saying something you're not supposed to. So things like, I think there's another one is called the climate change war or something like that. Another really good documentary with interviews with uh, loads of scientists who've either been bullied out. In fact, there was, I can't remember the guy's name, but there was one of them who was on the uh, international um, IPCC uh, climate change panel, the UN thing, uh, who was a whistleblower. And of course, he's never, ever, ever heard from again, you know. So he's trying to blow the whistle. He'd get a little thing in the Daily Mail maybe about him, one article, and then you never hear from him again. But he's, you know, he's talking about all the underhand tactics that they use in there. I think one of the most credible people on the Channel 4 documentary, The Great Global Warming Swindle, is the uh, former editor of The New Scientist, who was editor during the 1980s and then saw this whole sort of edifice, a massive amount of money going into uh, climate science industry. And you know what? There's a brilliant, um, there's a, a brilliant interview. Uh, I think it's Norman Dodd from from the 1950s, 60s, probably the interview was, where he's an American campaigner and he's talking about uh, the use of foundations, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie, the Ford Foundation, etc., to fund whole areas of universities, right? Whole faculties. In, I'm not talking about faculty at one university, but right across the Western world. So, you know, they'll pick the seven or eight key universities in a subject and they will fund chairs in that subject right across the world, you know, so that they are doing whatever they can to not only control the way an academic subject is taught uh, and the narrative around it, say, for example, economics or climate science, uh, but also for those individuals to keep a very close eye on other people in that uh, subject area so that they can then be targeted and taken out in one way or another. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about car crashes, but we're talking about, you know, being discredited um, professionally by, by by a professional, someone who's coming to professionally discredit them, to give them a character, to character assassinate them and this sort of thing. And, and this is what the guy from The New Scientist was talking about. He's saying, I've never seen anything like it. You know, the, 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 uh, the, the, when someone disagrees scientifically, that's used to be thought of as a good thing yeah. and it's brilliant you know because that's how all the big all the big uh, you know discoveries in science have, have come about over the years but now you know if you dare speak against these people these very well funded uh, you know faculties uh, I think people like John Hopkins University and, and um, Neil Ferguson's outfit at Imperial College in London whole buildings built by these foundations and massive amounts of facilities and tens and hundreds of staff paid for by foundations, not by governments. And not these people are not looking for any, you know, sort of 
academic freedom, what they've got is they've, they've got those jobs because they've been picked to find a specific type of thing in that subject. So I, I think it's been possible over the last 40, 50, 60 years to slowly but surely uh, occupy our universities with whole areas of expertise, which basically pull the wool over the eyes of the public effectively and and churn out a whole node of new academics who but think like they do. You know, it's a, a system of, I mean, this is Orwellian, really. You know, they, this is what I think they're trying to do. They're trying to control the future, really, by controlling these, you know, important areas of academia. Yeah, corporate chills infiltrating academic institutions over generations. This is really, really good stuff. Tony Gosling from Bristol, great journalist, former BBC journalist, the presenter and co-presenter of uh, this the, the Politics Show, Fridays, 5 o'clock, thisweek.org.uk. Check it out. I must ask you this, just, just before we move on to... I have a question for you about this coming winter and the NHS, but before I ask you that, like you mentioned, you know, the, the, the guys, uh, the, the scientists, his, his horror at how people were treated when they challenged the narrative and put forward a different point of view. Again, to go back to the online harms bill, it is feasible that anyone offering an opinion on social media or anywhere else online that this climate change thing is monumental bollocks. It is very feasible that will be deemed to be psychologically harmful to the very young and therefore that might be punishable. And that's that's not fear-mongering, that's a very realistic possibility. It just is, isn't it? Well, yes. I mean, okay, so there's going to become a specific narrative which everyone's got to follow this yeah. is why i say you know this is this is fascism and i really think it is you know uh because the i mean this is what orwell was writing about wasn't it you know the what you've got in his you know in in particularly in 1984 but in actually if you look at some of his other works like um the road to wigan pier for example he's, he's talking about a system which is absolutely abusive i mean he was writing that i think between or just before the second world war yeah. and saying things like well look the only thing that's going to improve the lot of people is if if there's a massive rearmament and of course that's exactly what happened and he was saying that it's almost impossible to be honest and stay alive you know i think that's possibly where we're heading with with all of this and that that you know, I don't think that's uh, you know, I don't think that's stretching a point to say that what they've done over the years, Richie, is I've, I mean, I, as I was saying at the start, I was there at the start to see the uh, all the best, all the best producers and journalists slowly being, you know, got. I, w- I won't say weeded out because they were the flowers. The weeds were being allowed to grow. The flowers yeah. were being, you know. Uh, grubbed up, pulled out, and thrown in the on the compost. You know that was what was happening, and slowly but surely, the mainstream media has become poisoned. Um, and it was, you know, you could get some fantastic BBC and ITV documentaries. As we know, things like World in Action. You know, there, there was all sorts of stuff around uh, back in the nineteen eighties and early nineties. And and then slowly but surely, everyone's been kind of who's got half a brain has been shoved online. And now it's almost like the the online is going to become the killing fields. You know, and and we had a we had a gold an age of radio and TV, it arguably anyway, with you know all the goons and things like this in yeah. the sixties and seventies, etc. And the golden age of the internet, I'm afraid, is slowly going to come to an end, and, and they're going to le- legislate against the truth. So once that happens, we really will be in you know in dire straits, I suppose. You know, people will just have to do what the Egyptians did. Uh, you know, in the Arab Spring, which is just to give up their homes and their computers and go out on the streets because they seem to be, I think, 
setting themselves and this is this the same goes for um, so much of, of the various agendas that are out there particularly the um uh the, this this kind of shutdown in the internet media agenda is they seem to be actually picking a fight with the entire population so they've been fighting with uh for example the the, the syrians you know with infiltrating various front organizations into the middle east to try and balkanize the middle east and now They've had enough of that because the Russians have put their foot down. Uh, I don't know if you saw yesterday, the Russians made a statement about uh, Iran saying that the Russians think that the uh, Americans have just got to simply sign the Iran nuclear deal again and with no caveats and just get back. And this is, I think, the Russians sending a very clear signal. They're saying, look, never mind your Glasgow cop stuff. You know, we're not going to sign up to anything like that until you re-sign this Iran nuclear deal. Because if you don't, there's going to, the Israelis are picking a fight all the time. They're trying to get a war started, initiate confrontations with Iran. And until you re-sign that deal to, to show to the world that you are not going to encourage and be part of Israel trying to pick a, a, a fight which could drag in the superpowers in the Middle East, then we're not playing games about climate change up in Glasgow. Uh, but anyway, you know, this. I, I just think journalism, you know, I know what you're saying about the online harms, and it is absolutely key. But I mean, we may have to, we may be driven off the internet. We may be, you know, and some of us might end up like Julian Assange, you know, uh, being criminalized for just telling the truth. But that's not, and that's not impossible to happen. No, no, it's a but guarantee. It's that's that a guarantee, Tony. Journalism out there. That's a guarantee, though. And this is not doom mongering or no. me, 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 me seeing the worst case scenario. This I believe that much of this bill um, is really about getting rid of the independent media. When they published the white paper three years ago, I sent several polite emails and letters, the old uh, snail mail, to Damien Collins at the time, asking to be contacted for um, by somebody to to facilitate me giving testimony to those hearings at the time. And my I wasn't being arrogant at the time. I said, look, I would be one of the more prominent, I suppose, um, because I'm probably the only daily uh, radio show in the independent media that does it. Well, can't you? Daily. Be, you could be an expert witness, actually. Well, that's what Why I not? said at the time. I said, "What yeah. you're what, because what they were talking about at the time was essentially, you know, coming after people who were spreading misinformation." And I wrote to them and I said, "Well, really, you're talking about people like me. I'm not the only one. There are many. Uh, the politics show your good self uh, for years and others." And I said, "Look." You've got, you can't have these conversations without inviting somebody to discuss why it is that we do the things we do. We do our programmes because there are learned and qualified men and women saying things that your commercial and mainstream and national media is effectively banning. But I never got a reply. I wrote two letters and I must have sent about 10 emails pleading with them to allow me to to come and speak and to be to be questions. You can ask me any questions you want, but it never happened. So so just to finish on this point before you come back in, the whole point of this online harms bill is to rid the country firstly of the independent media. No doubt about that. And the way things are going, and I'm not pessimistic by nature, I'm a very gregarious, usually happy, you know, up for it type of guy. They will succeed, I think, by the end of next year or the middle of 2023. They will get rid of us. If this online harms bill passes, which it will, well, there'll be nowhere for us to go, basically. Well, I think there will be, maybe in court, 
you know, and, and arguing our case in court. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty horrific that it's come to that. But, yeah. you know, without a, an independent press, of course, we do end up like China. And, I, you know, I'm one of those people that I'm, I'm quite conspiratorial when it comes to China. I look at the United States and China as two countries which have been set up, uh, you know, a bit like uh, England and Germany were before the Second World War. The idea is that, you know, you you guys are going to have a fight. You know, and I see the triads over in uh, in um, um, China. I see the Freemasons in the United States as a basically an equivalent organisation. So I don't know if you remember, there was that The Man Who Would Be King film uh, with Michael Caine, where, which is it's very similar, where he's a Mason and he goes out to this place, I don't know, it's in Nepal or Tibet or somewhere, and he does the few Masonic signs and they all go, oh, yeah, I recognise you. Yeah, 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 you're obviously one of us, you know. So the, these Masonic things are not just Freemasonry. There's all sorts of other secret societies that recognise those signs. And I think that's really what's going on. I don't know quite how many people realise it. And it's having discussions like that. I mean, talking about, for example, the Illuminati, you know, I, I got some amazing piece written about me. I think it was in the National Review in the United States states all about how i was such a terrible person because i talked about the illuminati look the illuminati is a, is a was a uh, historical organization it, you know it was in bavaria it was almost certainly involved in fermenting the french revolution there are all sorts of facts that we can glean about this organization from leaks at the time and particularly from John Robeson, the Scottish uh, author of Proofs of a Conspiracy, who wrote, he was the um, secretary of the Royal Society in Edinburgh and wrote a whole book about what he discovered because he was a multilinguist and he, he'd spoken to Illuminati people from France and Germany. And so he knew what was going on and he wrote a whole book exposing them back in about 1790. And, but this is, and it makes, for me, it makes fascinating reading. But, the, you know, if you mention this organization even exists, exists you know they came up apparently with this thing called uh, about liberals so you know if you're they invented the concept of a liberal party and a liberal so you know you just want freedom now there's no moral real moral limits on freedom so you just want to do what you want to do and this whole concept of uh, you know, liberal and liberty and everything was always associated with, or, uh, you know, that's at least what they saw as a strategy to bring people into the political arena who would bend the law in the direction that they wanted and make many more things be allowed, for example. So, you know, that's, that's what I can't, I can't stand about this is that you've got, what you've got is you've got a whole load of taboos and I just like to break those taboos, especially not just for the sake of it, but I find that lots of the taboos we've got out there are i mean for example talking about you know a man is a man and a woman is a woman for example yeah. seems to be they seem to be the key things that we need to be talking about so there's there's an increasing you know increasing number of these coming in uh, i just like to say i'm just on just talk about journalism generally i know it's sort of unrelated but i really like to talk about a couple of things i've discovered recently and i haven't really had time to talk about them on the, my radio show but the badger cull for example we've had this massive badger cull which is a hideous thing really you know hunting down and killing all these badgers Over TV, why not Tony, just leave them there they're, they're not really doing anybody any harm yeah. well apparently they've got tuberculosis right yeah. uh, the tuberculosis is a guy called dick uh, roper who's an estate manager around um, uh, wiltshire and chippenham area uh, who's who discovered that if he fed his cows and even he fed his badgers uh, selenium lick uh, that they were fine and they didn't catch tb 
So, you know, what they're doing is they're going around killing all these badgers and they've made a, an industry out of it. But actually, all they really need to do is give them some selenium. And he tracked the use of maize to feed cattle, which uh, right across the country, it was it increased in the 1990s and into the noughties. As, as the use of maize across the country increased, right, and they, this maize is being... And I got this off of one of the guys from Friends of the Earth a few weeks ago. Uh, he, he tracked this increase in the use of maize and the crops and feeding those to the cattle because maize is very de is, is deficient in certain um, uh, nutrition that the and trace elements that the cows need for their immune system. So the reason they were catching TB is because they kept being, being fed on maize and nothing else. And by just feeding them some, you know, some food supplements, then, then you don't need to cull any badgers anymore. So this is why we need actual real journalism. Another thing is the ash dieback. We've had, I mean, if anyone's driving around the UK at the moment, particularly here where I am in Gloucestershire at the moment and Bristol, you'll see there's whole areas of trees that are dead by the side of the road. And there's quite a lot of firms being employed to cut those trees down it's called ash dieback now it turns out guess who imported wish ash dieback into britain from holland and it was actually oriental saplings of ash which had this disease and were imported from holland despite warnings from their own staff the woodland trust so the woodland trust about uh, eight ten years ago started importing all these saplings of ash into britain and uh, clive andrews who was the uh, one of the senior people in the woodland trust at the time accidentally admitted to this in a meeting in, that we did it in error sorry and this is the you know this is these are the people who are supposed to be caring for our woodlands but no they want cheap you know cheap saplings of ash that they're bringing in from uh, the far east via holland and that's what's caused this a massive disease which has killed thousands well tens and hundreds of thousands of ash is trees it related to 5g Britain. tony sorry is it related to the rollout of 5G? Well, no, because of the look, the 5G's in the cities. This is out in the middle of nowhere. Most of the ash trees are, yeah. uh, and the forests around the country. You know, and, and estates have had to employ a whole load of people to to cut these trees down uh, for firewood because they're just no good anymore. The you know half the ash in the country roughly has been, you know, destroyed, being destroyed by this disease brought in by the Woodland Trust. But you know what? Nobody is talking Nobody's about reported that. Nobody's reported it. Nobody wants to say that the Woodland the Trust badgers. can't be trusted and that they have actually brought this into the country. So there's just a couple of examples, the badger cull and ash dieback, of things which really, you know, 10 years ago should have been sorted out, but they haven't because we don't have proper journalism in Britain anymore. You've got so many vested interests in the way uh, that, that people like me and other investigative journalists get absolutely nowhere. In fact, nowhere. we get bullied, actually. What we do is we get bullied out by the vested interests, including our mayor in Bristol, Marvin Rees, and his, you know, so-called so Labour, the Blairite lot, uh, who are just really in bed with the the big property speculators and developers, and and is, they're actually an insult to the intelligence of the city. But the, nevertheless, anyone that you know that points out that the fact that they're really working as almost as if they are um, uh, PR people for property speculators, then, uh, you know, oh, dear, we can't have that. So, you know, we get elbowed out. I suppose you got elbowed the thing out is, there. journalism is like that, though. I think you always you always have to be prepared to take a bit of flack. No, but you've taken, shed loads of it, uh, far too much of it over the years, and you're right to bring up what happened to you at BCFM because you're taking on Reese and Reese's henchmen. Uh, and there's always time to talk about that. But I want to take you back to two things you said just there. You mentioned the unnecessary badger call and the farmer who'd figured out that if you fed the, the badgers um, selenium, I think that's what you said, they that's wouldn't get right, TB yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah th this is really important. It's not covered. 
Um, and, and then you mentioned the, the importing of ash saplings from elsewhere that pass disease on to uh, trees in this country. I'm, I'm just going to put this out there. This is not necessarily what I believe, but some very intelligent people who are very spiritual, they feel that things like the badger call are because we're really being run by some sort of death cult, ultimately. It's easy to laugh at stuff like that and think it's very Hammer House of Horrors, but a lot, a lot of very smart people start to think like that. And then other people would say, Tony, you're absolutely bang on. They are rolling 5G out into cities. But of course, it's meant to be everywhere in the long run. So maybe there's a 1% chance that the destruction of the motorside or motorway trees has got something to do with uh, th- these communications. I'm not saying I'd go along with that, but my listeners would murder me for not bringing that up because they, <laughs> right. because, because they have a spiritual think, okay, so outlook right, on some of this. Right. I think- you know, to think these things through, let's just think it through. Okay, so we're living in a society you and I both know, which is becoming increasingly fascistic, where they don't want yeah. people to be independent, to be able to feed themselves, etc. They've all got to be dependent on money. That slowly but surely they're going to have their property taken off them. They won't be able to pass it on to their children. Even the Labour Party and the Tory Party both seem to be moving. Well, they are. The Labour Party definitely moving in that direction, and the Conservatives uh, too. You know, so these the idea is that you're completely impoverished. You've got nothing. It's as Klaus Schwab says, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, be happy. Uh, you will have nothing, but you'll be happy, and you'll be happy because if you go to the doctor saying, oh, no, "I'm unhappy," he's going to give you a happiness pill. You know, that's basically what they're talking about here, which is going to get you dependent on antidepressants, and you're going to be actually really, really miserable. But you won't know you're miserable because your brain has been switched off by you know psychotropic drugs of some sort. But but anyway, so. You know, the, the the fact is, I think, the reason that they're getting rid of the badgers, the actual reason, is to do with trying to cut down on wild food, right? So if people are in a situation where they, they can't afford to live in the city, then they're much more likely to go, well, they may even go out and start camping in the countryside. But if there are badgers around, they could trap them, they could shoot them, they could eat them. In many countries in the world, this is a living. You know, when we were out in New Zealand, there's a whole people, a whole load of people make a living out of shooting wild animals. And uh, some of them are wild. Some of them are sort of, you get a massive fenced forest and you get pigs in there and they will go and they make a living out of that. And they also eat eat those pigs but you know the idea that uh, you're going to be doing that in the future i think is you know if there's no badgers around then there's nothing to eat is there and they are they would be a potentially massive staple food in but you know back in the, the medieval villages every medieval village had its own rabbit warren right so if there was a particularly harsh winter they knew you know, we want to make sure that we can still feed feed our families and feed our kids, even in a harsh winter. Let's make sure there's a whole load of rabbits there. Now, most years we don't touch them. We might take a few. But we know that if it's a harsh winter, there's plenty of food around. Yeah. Now, it seems to me that's really what this, I think, what's what this badger cull's really about, is is cutting down the ability of people to get food other than at a supermarket. Which is incredibly evil. Which is, you know, speaks to those of my listeners that are bright and they understand these agendas, but they feel there's something more, not so much spiritual to it, but something far more malevolent and darker to it. And and I get that. Look, we've only got about seven minutes left on this. I wanted to ask you, you're listening to Tony Gosling, Bilderberg.org, thisweek.org.uk. Tony is an excellent author. And you really should have come back to talk about the books that you sent me because they're brilliant. (laughs) We will do that. No, we will. I promise you that we'll do that. But I wanted to ask you a final question. Um, Look, Javid, the health secretary, said he's leaning towards mandating 
is the jam for NHS staff. They've done it for care workers already. There is a fear that seniors won't be able to get out of hospital this winter because there won't be any where for them to go. We'll see bed uh, uh, blocking as a result of all of this. Ultimately, ultimately lockdowns and, and vaccine passports are inevitable. Do you see it that way? Oh, no, I don't, certainly don't see it as inevitable. I mean, this is a fight, isn't it? It's a struggle. And it's it seems to be being implemented far um, uh, more in the EU countries. You know, the place is run by Brussels, supposedly. Uh, so, it, you know, if they wanted to have a complete and utter disaster in the National Health Service over the winter, of course, the best thing to do would be to mandate vaccines because loads of people will then leave the National Health Service and start working for private healthcare people. Uh, so I don't think, I mean, the only opposition, it seems to me, is is from within the Conservative Party itself. Let's just say Sir David Amos, for example. He was one of the key people who was you know, would have been speaking after he was murdered by what looks like some sort of Manchurian candidate uh, in his uh, in his church in his sur- uh, surgery a few weeks ago in Essex. I mean, that was a bizarre incident, if ever there was one. So it took two hours or something for them to get him to hospital, which is far too long. Of course, you know, if you've been you know you're you're you're, you're hemorrhaging, then you need to be gotten to hospital for transfusion straight away. Yeah, you know, not. You know, let's fiddle around for two hours. So, you know, uh, I think that that angle, that those people in the Tory party. By the way, of course, all of this is the same people, pretty much, who were pro Brexit. So, uh, you know, I think we have to add it to these, you know, COVID. Um, uh, the, well, the European Research Group, the COVID Research Group people, they seem to be the only actual opposition in the entire uh, par- parliament. But uh, so, no, I don't think it's inevitable. I don't believe anything is really inevitable. And also, of course, they might try and implement it and there's a massive fight back. So, you know, I don't really believe in inevitable uh, ever. And I think, you know, that, that, what it what what it does is it assumes that that people don't have the ability to fight back, and I do think they do, especially in this country. I mean, we've got a lot of people who are, I think, particularly aware of the new world order agenda, whatever you might say. You know, the idea of a kind of uh, fourth Reich, a fascist system, and of course, that the, the other thing is that everybody should be aware. I'm not sure if they are that that this is being imposed. Uh, as all of our grandparents are, are basically going who remember the Second World War or great-grandparents, yeah. Yeah. you know? So the people that can remember what fascism was like, as they're dying out, there seems to be a new kind of thing being imposed. That's what I'd say. And the British Empire, which died pretty much in the Second World War uh, and was and the Americans tried, tried to take it over, is a very, very different thing. Uh, one thing I would say is, is just a bit of research I did recently about the empire uh, is goes back to John Dee. Now, he's a really interesting character from the, uh, an occultist from the time of Elizabeth I. And there was some research published in 2019, I noticed just the other day, up on the National Maritime Museum website in Greenwich. The deputy curator there uh, has done a whole load of research into Dee. And the, the things that he published back in the 1500s uh, about basically planning a British empire. So he was the first person, apparently, according to the, the people at the museum, to ever come up with the idea of a British empire. And they were very smart. Uh, they realised that if Elizabeth 
the first was to try and launch this empire that he was planning, that, that they get into all sorts of trouble with the other big countries in Europe, like you know, the, the Dutch and the Spanish and the French, etc. So the whole thing was done covertly by private finance. And the Queen, although she was knew all about it and was co- helping coordinate it all and was to benefit from it, uh, always just said, oh, no, 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 this is just, it's just a little private thing that they're doing here. So I don't know if any of your listeners know about John Dee. He was a you know notorious occultist, apparently, at the time, and a secret survey. The other thing is he had a whole load of, God knows where he got them from, navigation instruments, so to make it easier to navigate. And he was the guy who really got the uh, the, the Royal Navy uh, going in the time in order to uh, to go out and scope out and infiltrate countries and build an empire so uh and also to undermine the opposition you know by uh, making sure that the other big countries in europe didn't uh weren't quite canny about what we were really up to so this all started i suppose you know it was after the the overt discovery of america by uh, john cabot and christopher columbus you know once that happened uh, d put this this document together so it's a fascinating thing i mean i probably could find it on the the, the maritime museum website and uh, and that's how it started you know I, I just think you know we should all be taught how the british empire started and none of us are and of course it was the irish that started the put the 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 nails in the coffin of it you know in the first world war with the uprising so close to home which was a fantastic thing to do gene Anne is just mentioning edward kelly um the irishman who uh was uh d's companion or, or partner in crime tony we're going to leave it there for today um always educational mate never dull this week yeah, that just, UK. just wind up we're just plugging the book quickly which is this called the traitors of arnhem you can get it via bilderberg.org website and it really is the sort of introduction to some of the research i've done been doing for the last god 30 40 years have it here. which is looking at the links between the nazis and the bilderbergers and what's going on today you know this fourth reich and the idea that this money looted from europe from world war Two was invested in 750 corporations by borman the private secretary to Adolf Hitler, uh, who was actually uh, the last months of the war working very, very closely with the British, with Fleming and uh, John Ainsworth Davis, and uh, particularly with Desmond Morton, who was Churchill's private secretary, and then creating this Fourth Reich. What they were doing was putting the Nazis from their SS uniforms, taking off their uniforms, putting on nice suits, getting involved in these, in running all these businesses, transnational corporations, and the cleverest thing, which is explained by Paul Manning in his book, Martin Borman, Nazi in Exile, is making sure that Jews were the front men in many of these companies. So the idea was to make it that nobody would suspect, and I wonder whether maybe some of those Jews didn't realise that actually the companies were financed and run by Nazis. 100% right. And we could talk about the, how the, we could talk about the the, the Nazi roots of uh, the European Union as well. Uh, oh, God, that's a whole other subject. Whole other but anyway, subject. that's the Traitors of Arnhem. Traitors of Arnhem. Get hold of it via eBay or via Bilderberg.org. If you're interested in just sort of getting some of the grounding of the stuff I've been digging up over the years. I was nagged for years, Richie, about getting something were, yeah. down on paper, and I finally brought it out in the Halloween lockdown this time last year, and it came out in paper back in April this year. Well, your, your, journal, your journalist skills stood you in good stead writing it. It's very easy to read, and uh, it's okay. compelling, yeah. Uh, Bilderberg.org for that. The, the Traders of Arnhem. Tony Gosling live on uh, the Richie Allen Show this Monday. T, Godspeed to you. We'll be talking again real soon, no doubt, mate. Thanks for your time as always. Thanks very much. And it's thisweek.org.uk where we do the weekly show. God bless Five Richie. o'clock. Take care, mate.
Brilliant. Thanks. Only five o'clock on Friday. It's brilliant. Some of my, many of my listeners love the show and they they, they blog about it every Friday on richieallen.co.uk to make sure uh, that, um, that the people are aware that it's on. It's an excellent programme. Check it out thisweek.org.uk. Thank you uh, for all of your messages this afternoon. I really appreciate them. Uh, there's been many of them. Do do go and read them. Interact with other people on richieallen.co.uk. Comment live. I'll be a bit better at reading them out uh, tomorrow. I promise you that. If there are guests tomorrow. Don't ask me. Uh, because as usual, I can't tell you off the top of my head, but uh, there are guests tomorrow. There are guests throughout the week, in fact. I think I've booked in. Uh, so I have. Was there something else? I think there was something else on the tip of my tongue to tell you. Wasn't there? There was something. Um, yeah, but it's gone now. Uh, it's completely gone. It's completely gone off the top of my head. So I, I, I just uh, better just kind of leave it there. Yeah, do go to the website richieallen.co.uk. In the last uh, week or so, I've gotten back on top of putting more uh, content on there, like small uh, articles, uh, basically news stories, sometimes uh, opinion pieces. Uh, they're either interesting or they're not. That's up to you, but you can go on there and read them uh, in any case. Uh, that's richieallen.co.uk. I would um, recommend, uh, again, if you're a podcast listener, do download the Podomatic app. That's podomatic.com. Download the app and get the programme through Podomatic because it is being chopped up by some of the podcast providers. Now, I'm not complaining about that. I'm not whinging about it. It is what it is. It's what the system, for want of a better way of putting it, is doing. And there isn't anything I can do about that. But Podomatic.com, that's who I pay to host uh, the, 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 recording, the recordings of every day's programmes. So if you go there, it'll never be cut. That's uh, podomatic.com, richieallen.podomatic.com. Now, you know that PayPal kicked the Richie Allen Show into touch, and that's been a huge problem. And I have, I have on the website, it says, support your show. There are bank account details, and there is a Patreon thing there. Now, t- totally unsurprisingly, because of the PayPal thing, Support for the programme is down. It's considerably down, right? That's just the way it is because PayPal basically deleted the show. A lot of the PayPal people are not even aware of that yet, even though it happened about five, six, in fact, it might be seven weeks ago. So I'm asking you to be on top of that. If you are a supporter of the programme financially, you might not be aware of it, that your PayPal is just gone. It isn't going through anymore. So I'm asking you, to support the programme, go to richieallen.co.uk. At the top of the page, on the menu bar, support your show. Use the bank thing or use Patreon. I prefer you use the bank thing because Patreon takes a big cut of any funds <coughs> excuse me, that are generated. But I do bear in mind, because of PayPal, support in general for the programme is down. Uh, on that, I will give a big shout out to Mark Boyerski. Do go to Mark's website, markbyerski.com. Great, great guy and a steadfast uh, supporter of the independent media. And thanks to him for all of his uh, efforts. He's a top, top man. Right, I'll leave you in love. You would have been a Nile Rogers. Okay? And say good evening and we'll speak again tomorrow. Take care of yourselves and one another. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks to Lee Wells, LaRue Restaurant and to Tony Gosling. Bye now.